Gender is the term that was first introduced by John Money, psychologist John Money. His proof of concept failed utter- miserably. It could not have failed more. John Money was sexually abusing those kids and he was showing them pornography. And he was also uh, for incest. He was publicly pro-incest. So this is a wicked guy. When I have looked at some of these theories, when I have looked at the people who have put forward these theories, who have created these theories, there seems to be a link between these types of theories and pedophilia. Am I wrong in making that assertion? People like John Money, they want to promote the idea that we are all sexual from cradle to grave. So if children are sexual, well then why are we preventing them from engaging in sexual behavior with adults. I mean, adults are who love them. What's wrong with that? There is a link. There is a real link. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissam. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our terrific guest today is a child and adolescent psychiatrist. She's author of many books, the latest of which is called Lost in Translation. And you may have seen her very important contributions to What is a Woman, the documentary that we've covered on here. Dr. Miriam Grossman, welcome to Trigonometry. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Oh, it's Mm going to be great. Before we go into the conversation itself... Uh, Tell everybody a little bit about your background. How are you where you are? What has been the journey through life that leads you to be sitting here talking to us across the Atlantic? (laughs) Well, uh, as you said, I'm a child, an adolescent, an adult psychiatrist, a medical doctor. Uh, Let's see, how did I get to be sitting in this chair right now and talking to you? I guess the short answer would be I always had an interest in female biology. I was always fascinated by uh, the female menstrual cycle and pregnancy and maternal child bonding. And uh, that's always been my first love in science. Now, uh, I have been seeing children and adolescents and families for many decades in my office. And most recently, I've been seeing kids who Uh, express some distress over being boys or girls and their parents. Now, I have done a lot of research into this field of, uh, let's call it gender ideology, or in my book, I call it uh, a belief system. And I have concluded that it is a utterly unscientific, uh, without medical basis, uh, system of beliefs that is being uh, uh, thrust on us, foisted on us by a a movement, a social political movement, turbocharged movement, and uh, the victims here primarily are the children and their families. There are other victims as well. I believe that all of society are victims, but. I'm focused, since I am a psychiatrist, I'm focused on what's happening with the children, with their parents, and I am uh, deeply alarmed and angry uh, about what I've been seeing for the past few years in my office, and I felt that a book is necessary to help these parents. They tell me that when the announcement was made in their home, mom, dad, I'm not your son, I'm your daughter, when that kind of announcement is made, they were blindsided. They were shocked. They never expected it. They didn't know how to respond. And they then took their child to a gender-affirming clinic or a gender-affirming therapist. And that ended up being the worst mistake they had they could ever have made. So uh, I felt that a book is necessary not only to help the parents that are currently going through this crisis at home, but in order to help parents prevent such a crisis and, so to speak, to inoculate 
their children and their families from this dangerous belief system entering and gaining a hold with one of their kids. Once that happens, it can be very difficult to get the child out. So my book is called Lost in Transnation, A Child Psychiatrist's Guide Out of the Madness. And I put my heart and soul into that book. I've written other books. I wrote four other books. I never put so much heart and soul into any book as I have this book. And that is because I have seen such, such suffering and shattered lives uh, that I decided I'm really going to devote. I mean, I'm at the end of my career, but I am going to devote the years that I have left to fighting this. And so that's how I got to be sitting in this chair in front of you right now. That makes perfect sense, Miriam. And it's a real uh, pleasure to have you on the show. And I can't wait to talk about your book, particularly uh, I became a parent recently. And so I know that this is kind of something that a lot of parents are having to now think about, unfortunately. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, one of the things I wanted to speak with you about, we've had all sorts of people on the show to talk about, you know, whistleblowers from transgender clinics and uh, physicians and parents and so on. But one thing I wanted to delve deeply into with you first is just some very basic questions that are still being debated in our society. Is there such a thing as gender? <laughs> okay, well, let's see. What am I going to do with that particular question? <laughs> so that can be, we can go in different directions here. Okay. We can talk about language and how a uh, certain lexicon that has been created by this social movement and this vocabulary has been uh, forced upon us. That's one direction. The other direction we could go in is to talk about biology. So let me first go to the biology. Um, let, let's just get certain things straight, you know, from the get-go. So we are mammals. Mammals are, uh, ha are, are dimorphic in terms of their sex. They, there's two sex, sexes, male and female. And the way that that is determined, whether a person is male or female, is you look at their reproductive systems and you see whether that reproductive system is organized around creating sperm or eggs. Now, it's one or the other. That doesn't mean that every single human being is fertile. There are people that are infertile. But that's besides the point. Whether they are not fertile is not the point. The point is whether their reproductive system is fundamentally designed around the possibility of creating eggs or sperm. And every single human being would fall into one of those categories. Uh, well, okay, wait, uh, uh, wait, I'm just going to, just let me say something here. And by the way, I almost chopped my finger <laughs> off yesterday in the kitchen. So your audience should just understand that's why I have this bandage. I'm fine. No worries. Um, there are extremely rare individuals. Uh, these individuals at one time were called hermaphrodites and they are now called intersex. And some of those intersex people, you know, a, a minority of them, it they may have both both male and female elements in their reproductive system. And I have had a patient like that who had both um, uh, testicles that were undeveloped and an undeveloped uterus. So, you know, and chromosomally also was, was an anomaly. So that person, you could argue, is, is, is truly an intersex, you know, un unclear how to identify this person. But the numbers of babies being born that fit into that category are extraordinarily rare. 
And what this belief system of this transgender belief system is foisting on us and on children is the belief that we all fall within some sort of a spectrum of male and female, with male and female only being the two extremes at each end. But then there's an infinite number of points in between those two extremes. And we have to validate all these possible identities and uh, that nothing is pathology, nothing is abnormal. These are all variations of human expression. Now, to get back to your question, what is gender? Gender is the term that was first introduced uh, in the 50s uh, by John Money, psychologist John Money at Johns Hopkins University. He was a famous sexologist and psychologist whose main area of study were these individuals that I just described, uh, intersex individuals, babies, then called hermaphrodites. And his main interest was in uh, how is that assignment made? Now, there's the word assignment, okay? That's a big word, right? Assignment, big, big word. I'll get to that in a minute. How is how are those kids assigned male or female when they're born? Okay, we're talking. This is the fifties, the sixties. You got to wrap the baby immediately in either a pink or or a blue blanket. We don't have those pink right now. We have, you know, for a long time those those blankets that the newborns are wrapped in for decades now are striped blue and pink. At least in the U.S. Do you have that there? No, I don't think we have a specific color, but I'm sure it'll be rainbow colors before we know it. <laughs> so it used to be, I mean, when I was doing my training and uh, working in the delivery room, there were pink or blue blankets. And obviously that's a very big deal. What is the very, what is the first thing, if you haven't had an ultrasound and you don't know ahead of time, what is the first thing that the doctor or midwife is going to say? Congratulations, it's a boy. Congratulations, it's a girl. What happens if a baby is born and they're not sure if it's a boy or a girl? So these were the cases that John Money was fascinated with. And he proposed that we, there's the, he, he introduced the word gender and gender identity to refer to our sex as separate from our genitals. So he, he invented this idea that we have a psychological sex, not just a biological sex, but a psychological sex in our mind and that we are born gender neutral so that when we're born, even a normal child, uh, he, he proposed, is born without any uh, uh, propensity or quality, you know, masculine or feminine qualities. Yes, there were certain physical characteristics, obviously, that were different. And John Money would say things like, well, females, they lactate, they menstruate, and they gestate. Okay, meaning they, you know, have their periods, their breasts produce milk, and they get pregnant and uh, carry a child and deliver a child. But aside from those areas, everything else is imposed by society, a social construct. So all the sort of so-called feminine qualities of being nurturing and, you know, preferring to play with dolls instead of, uh, instead of trucks and, uh, interest in, uh, the more nurturing professions and, uh, being more, uh, maybe verbal and articulate. I mean, all these kind of stereotypical 
uh, things. So John Money proposed that this is all imposed by society, a social construct. But in addition, he came up with this revolutionary theory that because that's the case and we are all born gender neutral, that therefore a boy could be successfully raised as a girl and a girl as a boy, it all dependent on environment. So this was at a time in society when there was a great debate going on, nurture versus nature. Okay, nurture being the, our families and our parents and siblings and teachers and our, uh, all, of, all of the messages that we get from our environment versus nature, what, what is inborn, what uh, are the role of our chromosomes, the role of our, um, our biology, our hormones, okay? Nature versus nurture. So that was a big debate at the time. Now, John Money's theory that we are born gender neutral and that uh, it was going to be society that's going to determine if a boy feels like a boy and acts like a boy, and it was not his biology, he proposed that in order for this to happen, to raise a boy as a girl, a girl as a boy, it had to happen before the age of two and a half or three. So that was his big theory. Now, I'll just throw in here, and I explain this in depth in the book. And I ask the question, when you have someone that devotes their life to a particular cause, to promoting a certain theory, an idea, and he really did devote his life to this idea that I just described, we have to ask why. Why is that particular idea so, so important to them? I'm a psychiatrist, right? I'm a shrink. So that's what I do. <laughs> I try to figure people out. So I tried to figure out John Money. Why was this theory so important to him? And as you will learn, he actually, when he did his research, this experiment on this theory, and the results were negative, he refused to acknowledge those results. That's how much, how important it was to him that his theory be proven correct. And when it was proven incorrect, big time, he did not announce that, he did not acknowledge that. So why? Why was this so important to John Money? that a person has not only a physical sex, but a psychological sex, which is their gender, and that they don't have to match. Well, if you look at his writings, and he wrote a lot, he was prolific, um, you find that John Money had a very difficult childhood. He was raised in New Zealand on a farm, and his father was a alcoholic who had uh who, who had outbursts uh, of rage and violence uh and his behavior was completely unpredictable as most alcoholics are and little john grew up in a home in which he was beaten by his father and he witnessed his mother being beaten by his father as well now john was a uh boy who was a small a small stature and he was a thoughtful child and he was not a stereotypical boy who was out there uh getting into fights and uh being aggressive and he wrote about his childhood that he realized that it might be better for women if not only animals, but men were gelded. Gelded, of course, meaning castrated. Um, again, he grew up on a farm. He saw animals being gelded, I would imagine. I don't know for a fact. But he knew about gelding male animals. And he wrote that it might be better for women and better for the world if men were gelded. The true feminist. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, he also wrote, and this is most telling, John Money wrote, I bear the evidence of man's vile masculinity. I don't know if I got every word there. I think that's right. Something about bearing the mark or bearing the evidence of man's, you know, of vile masculinity. In other words, his genitals. So if we were to diagnose John Money today, we would say he, he could have had what we call gender dysphoria, which is an aversion, a feeling of discomfort, severe discomfort with your genitals and with your biological sex. So I'm proposing that John Money had gender dysphoria. So gender is a concept invented by this very troubled guy in the 50s and 60s. And yet the idea that gender exists is everywhere now. Am I hearing you correctly if we summarize that, that it's actually BS? There's no such thing as gender in humans or in animals. No, I wouldn't say that because okay. um, there are many, many people that do experience this kind of psychological sex called gender. What I would say is the problem here is not that gender doesn't exist. It's saying that gender or gender identity is primary, is more important than your physical identity. And that everyone has to, you know, bow down and gesticulate to their own or others' perception, their own or, uh, you know, perception of their gender identity, that that is primary. And even if a child is five years old, that if the moment that that boy says, I'm a girl, we're supposed to all say, okay, you're a girl. What name do we use? What do you want to wear? Let's get a, let's grow your hair out. And, and, and imagining that they are not going to pay a price for that, for denying their biological sex. That is my argument. So what I am saying is that this idea, and it's and it is simply an idea, it's not hard science, it's not something we can measure. Okay, biological sex, we can see it, we see it under the microscope. Okay, you, you see the chromosomes, you see the egg, you see the sperm, you can measure it, you can take pictures of it, you can study it using the scientific method. Gender is not something that we have we can measure. We can at least not measure it in a way that's consistent with the scientific method. So gender would fall into the area of soft science, not hard science. And that's important to point out as well. Soft science being, uh, well, hard science being areas, uh, the study of the, of the real physical world, biology, chemistry, physics. Miriam, can I just, so I, I just want to stop you there because what you're saying is incredibly interesting. My question is, if this man has been discredited, if his research was found to have, to, to not have any scientific value, then why is it that these ideas are still being propagated today? Bingo. And my book explains why? And the short answer is that, number one, he, he uh, publicized his fraudulent data, and we didn't get into the, the experiment that he did on these twins, and, and we don't need to, but your audience should learn about it. He had an ex one experiment. He did one, his proof of concept of his theory of gender identity being uh, being that we're born uh, uh, gender neutral and that it's all about society and that it's all about gender identity and that it's flu, all that stuff was pr his proof of concept failed utter miserably. It could not have failed more, but it only became known that it had failed after about 25, 30 years after he began saying that it was a success. So there was a long delay in 
uh, the discovery that the individuals that he had experimented on, the boy that was raised as a girl because he had had his penis burnt off during a circumcision, and his parents took him to Johns Hopkins to see Dr. Money. Dr. Money said, raise this boy as a girl and he will be fine. We'll castrate him. We'll do some surgery. We'll give him some hormones at the right time. He'll be absolutely fine. They listened to him. They tried it. It was a disaster. He ended up killing himself. He never felt like a girl. He never acted like a girl. And his biology was coming through loud and clear. That Y chromosome, that tiny little Y chromosome, makes a big difference. Now, by the time that David Reamer, this boy that was raised as a girl, came out publicly and said, my life was a disaster because of John Money. I was exploited by the medical field. And not only that, but John Money's results, when John Money went and said that I, speaking, in other words, David speaking now, that I was a success and that I actually felt like a girl, this, you know, you have to understand. I mean, it's it's impossible to believe here, isn't it? You see, David Reamer was was the perfect, perfect uh, uh, subject for, for John Money. He was a twin. He had an identical twin. So he, and they were, of course, raised in the same environment, the same family. This was the perfect setup. It was the answer to John Money's prayers. And so they do this experiment, and this little boy is told from the age of about 18 months that he's a girl. Okay, he's still in diapers, and he's told he's a girl. He's given the name Brenda. He's put in dresses. Uh, the whole world, all his relatives, this is the perfect social trans, we would call it socially transitioning right now, except that the kid himself didn't know that he was being socially transitioned. So what could be more perfect than that? And it, and it was a complete failure. But Baron, so that being the case, why is it, Miriam, that we've now seen, we'll fast forward to 2023, and it feels that this ideology is everywhere. It's exploded in popularity. It's now being regurgitated as fact. Why is that? Well, the ideologues on the left uh, took hold of what Dr. Money was saying. Uh, we're talking about the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, before David Reamer came out. The book that really publicized, well, there was a BBC documentary about him as well, but this all happened in the late 90s. The book that came out, published telling his story, is called As Nature Made Him by John Colapinto, came out in 1999. It was before John Money died. John Money, his whole life, never made any public statements regarding what happened. In other words, public statements acknowledging the disaster of his experiment. You're asking the question that I've been asking for 15 years. Why is it that now that we know what happened to those twins, and did I say they both committed suicide, or did I just say David did? No, you just said, just said David. They both commit. Well, the other, his identical twin uh, died of, a, of an overdose. So... He destroyed a family, John Money, and he was, every time the kids were taken down to see him, because they lived in uh, Canada, and the parents would take them down once a year to see John Money, John Money was sexually abusing those kids, and he was showing them pornography. Uh, he, he, in his mind, well, he was pro-pornography. He, he felt that, it, that kids needed to see, in order to develop normally in terms of their sexuality, he believed that uh, all children needed to be exposed to graphic sexual images. And he was also uh, for incest. He was publicly pro-incest. So 
this is a wicked guy. We're talking yeah, about a that's wicked person. Yeah. That's, that's fair yeah. to say. I so, think that's fair to say. It is yeah, fair. Yeah. So I, I think the thing that Francis is trying to get at is how does this person remain in all our lives to this day with his crazy theories uh, that are now being taught in school, that are now creating clinics? I mean, why is this continuing? And and your profession, your uh, you are, is to my understanding at least, a bit of an outlier. Many people in your profession believe that children who say that they're the opposite sex must be affirmed. Uh, oh, of must... course. Well, that's that's what I'm, of course, that's what my association tells me to do as well, my professional association, obviously. So do they not know about John Money's failed experiment? Do they not care? I mean, how are we here? I would say they don't know. I would say that this is already so ingrained, this whole hoax uh, has become so ingrained and baked into so many institutions that it's 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 really uh, difficult to make any sort of headway and make a U-turn uh, and, and look at this. And I'll tell you something also that's very fascinating. The book that I am telling you, the, the book from which I learned all this, John Colapinto's As Nature Made Him, that book got an award from an LGBT uh, literary association. Like, what? W why? Why? Let me explain. You see, the way that they see this case of the twins is that this is how it's they spin it. They say, well, David Reamer's gender identity was male. And it was put upon him that he should be female. And so that's an example of how gender identity is primary. So they don't say biology. They say it's his gender identity and the poor boy, his parents and everybody was trying to tell him that he's a girl, but he knew his, psych his psychological sex was that he was a boy. And Miriam, we've now, like I said, fast forwarded to 2023. This thing has ex exploded more and more children are identifying as, as the opposite sex. In your opinion, how have we got to this point? It's spreading a theory, but there's something far deeper going on societally, isn't there? Well, of course. And I do explain just as a continuation of your last question of how did this happen once we knew about David Reamer and about John Money's fraudulent research. You see, <clears throat> I explain in my book how slowly through the years, this idea of gender identity being being primary, more important than biology, uh, that sex is on a spectrum, that you know, gender and sex started to be used as synonyms. That was a very important thing that happened. But I, I focus especially on what happened in psychiatry. Okay, because really... I mean, we're the pe we we're the ones that come out and say what's a disorder and what is not, and we're the ones that every ten or fifteen years comes out with a new manual. Uh, uh, you know, the DSM. Uh, we're now up to DSM five, which was written in two thousand thirteen, and so it's on our shoulders, right? Psychiatrists and psychologists get together, talk, look at the research. Well, they're supposed to look at the research and make a decision about what's going to be a disorder and what isn't. So what happened regarding this particular situation is that we, we knew in psychiatry for a long, long time that there were extremely rare individuals that had gender dysphoria, which is this intense discomfort with your sex. Um, and we knew that they basically fell into two categories. I'm oversimplifying, but let's say two categories. One were little boys who at the age of two or three or four would come to their parents and say, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl. 
you know, I, I desperately, you know, I, I want to grow a penis, things like that. And we know that those kids, if they are watched carefully and given support, the vast majority of them, if they go through puberty, normal puberty, not synthetic puberty, will outgrow their gender dysphoria. The other group of people that we always knew about were middle-aged heterosexual men who enjoyed cross-dressing and after having families would sometimes make the decision to, to live the rest of their lives as a female and perhaps get the medical treatment. So those were the two groups. Now, uh, very rare, again. So what happened is that uh, when it came time, okay, so there was a diagnosis in the DSM called gender identity disorder. And what I just described to you about those two groups, they, they had gender identity disorder with the emphasis on disorder. Now, um, society was changing, culture was changing, and there were, you know, in the universities and in sex education, big, big thing. I, I'm not going to have time to talk to you about sex education, but yeah. this was a major, major influence and pipeline into, into these kids' minds. So um, all these changes were happening, and essentially they were, you know, Without psychiatry even putting their stamp of approval on the idea that that gender identity is more important than biology and that you can have an identity separate from your biology at odds with your biology and that that is not pathology, that is not represent psychopathology, that idea was already swirling around and was actually accepted. I went to a lecture I think it was in 2006, and a psychiatrist, was it a psychiatrist? It was a medical doctor, stood up and um, gave a lecture on, if you have someone that comes to your office and wants to go on, on hormones and get surgeries in order to live as the opposite sex, our job as doctors is to give it to them. Our job as doctors is not to you know, examine or do what they call gatekeeping, you know, send the, send the person for psychotherapy. Um, our job is to accept what they're saying and to rubber stamp their diagnosis and, and do what they wish. Now that was back in 2006. So, and I explain all this in the book. So this was already happening. And there were a lot of people in psychiatry and in psychology who believed that we should simply be rubber stamping and, and, and what they wouldn't call it rubber stamping. They would say that it's the person's civil right and that this is respecting them and respecting their identity. And so by the time that it came to be um, for, for psychiatrists to, and psychologists to, to write a new DSM, the pressure was very, very high not only to eliminate this diagnosis as a disorder, but to take it out altogether. So it just, it shouldn't even be part of this uh, manual of, of psychiatric disorders or conditions. Miriam, this is why I asked you uh, right at the beginning about the concept of gender itself, because, and I'm not a psychiatrist, as you can imagine, so correct me on everything I'm saying, but it seems to me as we've looked at this issue and talked to different people that a lot of the, the conversation we're having stems from the invention of this concept of gender. And if we were to say, yes, some people feel a discomfort with the biological sex that they are, and yes, that is something that, that causes them distress, that is something that they can seek psychiatric help for, and maybe for some of those people, living as the opposite sex may be the right solution. But that does not mean that this mythical concept of gender identity exists. Is, isn't, why can't we say that? Because you said to me you don't agree with that earlier. Why can't we say that? Is it incorrect? Um, well, listen, the questions can't even be asked because there is a tyranny in the organizations now. But I'm main... asking you. I'm asking you. Oh, well, of course, that is the, uh, of course, what you just said is, is correct that we have to acknowledge that there are rare people, they used to be rare, 
um, that do have this disorder and they deserve our compassion and they deserve our mm-hmm. understanding. And yes, some of them, yes, some of them do require these interventions. Absolutely, they do. I'm not denying that. What yes. I am saying is that what we are now doing is that uh, teaching preschoolers, three-year-olds, that they may have been born in the wrong body and that that's perfectly normal and that if they, uh, uh, you know, and that if they wish to, uh, you know, uh, live as the opposite sex and they wish they, they, they would rather be boys or they, they, you know, you get to pick and whatever you pick, we're going with it. All the adults are going. I mean, you know, this is just, you know, it, 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 it's just appalling. It's astonishing. It's, I don't I don't know that I have the right words to express how destructive this is and destabilizing to a little child to introduce in their minds the idea that they may be in the wrong body that is destabilizing that is destructive. We don't want any child to to feel uh disembodied to feel like like something's wrong about how they were made. This is destabilizing. This is awful. This is not what we should be doing for our children. But let me just add, I'm sorry, I didn't finish with the DSM. So there were people that felt it needed to be completely removed. So why did it? Why was it kept in? And I'll explain why it was kept in. It was for two reasons. It was kept in because the doctors who were involved were, compa- were, were compassionate and they, they felt badly they they felt empathy for their patients and for these individuals who have difficult lives and there is stigma against them and they felt that by making this taking out the disorder category and no longer calling it a disorder but emphasizing instead of the identity part of it the incongruence of the identity they are emphasizing the distress that they feel so they shifted the focus. Absolutely. And I look, and from on, on the one hand, I'm listening to this and I'm going, that is compassion and empathetic. On the other hand, that is a fundamental denial of reality and biology. And at some point, the medical industry, the psychiatric industry, they're going to face a day of reckoning, aren't they, Miriam? Because to be brutally honest, there's a lot of young people and children who have had medical interventions that are irreversible and highly damaging and which they shouldn't have had. Well, that day of reckoning, it, 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 it you know, the lawsuits uh, have started. Uh, you had the CAST report uh, uh, and, and, the, and the closing, the imminent closing of Tavistock, the GIDS service. So the day of reckoning uh, in the U.S. is certainly coming. And I have to say, I look forward to it. I've been waiting for it for a long time. I want to add one thing, just because I want to be thorough. The other reason that the diagnosis was kept in the DSM was in order for it to have a code for insurance purposes, because these individuals, of course, need uh, psychiatric help and psychological help, and some of them are going to go for the medical interventions. You need to have a code for the insurance to reimburse you. So, Miriam, what we've done is we've identified the two groups that historically transitioned, which is the young children, and we're talking about the adult males, adult heterosexual males. What we haven't addressed is the young girls, which now seems to be almost the majority of people. In your opinion, what is is happening there and why? So we have a new group, a new demographic, as you mentioned, mostly girls, still a lot of boys. It's not like it's 90-10. It's more like maybe 60-40. There's still an awful lot of boys. Um, so this new group, you know, was only recently identified in 2018. We had Lisa Lippmann uh, do the research and, and coin the term rapid onset gender dysphoria and very it turned into a controversial term and there was you know a lot of you know 
it's just it's just unbelievable what's going on. The the resistance on on the left to fight any any shred of evidence that their theories and their uh, beliefs about how, how how to treat these kids is wrong. But anyway, to answer your question, this is a group of a majority being uh, young girls who who never before expressed any discomfort with being a girl uh, and who over a short period of time and following immersion in in the internet and uh, social media, and most of them also have uh, a lot of at least one or multiple pre-existing psychiatric problems. So by that I mean a lot of them are on the autism spectrum. They have anxiety disorders. They have social phobia, depression. They may have uh, self-injury. They may be cutting themselves. They may uh, have undergone or gone through some trauma in their life. And so these are girls, and, and I'm not going to say just girls because there's a lot of people actually dismiss the boys, and I'm not going to do that. I've seen too many boys in my office and talked to too many parents of boys to do that. There's a ton of boys that are in this also. So they are led to believe that, uh, that, that if they don't feel comfortable with themselves, if they don't like getting their periods, they don't fit in with their friends, they're not stereotypical girls, they're, perhaps they're attracted romantically to other girls. There's many different things that could be going on here. Well, then, you, you might be a boy. And, of course, you get a lot of um, points your, your status is elevated when you come out as non-male or female. I don't use the word cisgender because that's part of the lexicon that I refuse to use. Um, if you come out to your friends uh, as being neither male or female, it's, you know, you, you're kind of an elevated status. And not only that, but you are no longer, you see, if you are a white heterosexual middle class or upper class uh, student, you're an oppressor. I mean, that, that's this is a whole other subject, right? One with which we're quite familiar, Miriam, yeah. believe me. <laughs> okay. So you don't want to be an oppressor. Yeah. You want to be oppressed. You don't want to be an oppressor. So if you are a member of a sexual minority and, you know, or another minority, you can't change your race. You can't change your socioeconomic status. You can't change, you know, you're not going to come out and say you're gay or lesbian if you're not. But to say that you're neither male or female, okay. I mean, after all, you know, we're all mosaics. This is me speaking now. This is the truth. I'm not saying that this is what these kids say. You know, I could wake up one day and be feeling more, I don't know, ambitious and aggressive and like, I'm going to go and do this. And I could say, oh, I'm, I'm feeling masculine today. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm non-binary. <laughs> I mean, look. that is my, that was my first thought when you joined the call, Miriam. Yeah. Uh, but listen, uh, I want to uh, ask you about, you, obviously what you're saying makes a lot of sense to us. Mm. Um, how have your views been received by your colleagues and how have you found speaking about these issues, which you did actually much earlier than most people from 2009 onwards, what impact has that had? How easy has it been to publish your books, etc.? cetera? Uh, it's not been hard to publish my books, but I do have to go to those publishers that... Uh, believe in free speech. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you've got a choice of two. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and my the book, uh, You're Teaching My Child What, that, that warned parents about sex education. And I just want to emphasize, you know, I write these books as a medical professional. So my books provide science. They provide medical information. This isn't, you know, my beliefs as a religious person, which I am, 
these are medical facts. Um, and so you're asking about the response. Well, my 2009 book um, was considered, of course, politically incorrect. And so it was only uh, picked up by uh, organizations that are conservative, uh, you know, re uh, religious organizations, um, and so on. So, I mean, I did have some success, not anywhere near as what I what I still believe it deserved. The book is coming out again. Actually, the it's very interesting that now that I have this book coming out, and now that sex education finally, finally, people are realizing that what their kids are being told is just, uh, uh, it's wicked. Again, we get that word back again. I mean, what we're exposing kids to at a young age and the lies that we are telling them, not only about gender, about other things, but finally people are waking up and parents are waking up. I hope in the, I know in the U.S., I don't know about the U.K., Oh, by the way, did you know that I spoke in the House of Lords 11, 12 sure. years ago? We didn't. No, we yeah. didn't. There how you go. You, how would you know? Yeah. Um, There's so a I, reason why the left dislike you, Miriam. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I spoke there about sex education. And oh boy, at that time, your sex education in the UK, it was even worse than ours. It, when I say worse than ours, uh, if I recall correctly... You had websites, I'm getting off topic a little bit, but I remember doing research into your sexuality education there and going on to government websites, uh, you know, or NGOs, you know, NGO organizations that are funded by your government. And there would be links provided to the kids that were on that site of where to go, like bars, where to go for gay sex. It just I mean, took... yeah, I, I just yeah, I, I mean, whenever we touch upon this subject, it, I, I find it horrifying, particularly as, as I, I, you know, I used to be a teacher and in education. I guess the question and the reason I stopped you there is because I'm going to ask a question, which it's an uncomfortable one. But it, I know, it, but I didn't it... answer. Wait, do you want oh, to sure. But no, because it, it provides a link into the question that I'm going to ask, which I really, which I think goes to the heart of some of this stuff. When I have looked at some of these theories, when I have looked at the people who have put forward these theories, who have created these theories, there always seems to be a link. And if I'm wrong, please push back on me. I'm not putting words in your mouth. There seems to be a link between these types of theories and pedophilia. Am I wrong in making that assertion or is there truth to what I'm saying? And why is it that we are not actually shouting about this from the rooftops because it is a child protection issue? Some people are shouting from the rooftops. As usual, they're, they're being silenced and not given the microphone. Uh, I would say that... I, I, I call what's going on with kids grooming. Okay, so let's define what grooming is. Grooming is the emotional and psychological manipulation of a vulnerable person with the goal of exploiting them in some way in the future. There is sexual grooming, there is financial grooming, and there is ideological grooming. Now, I believe that with all of our sexuality education and gender education, there is no doubt in my mind that there is sexual and ideological grooming that's going on. And I'll explain a very simple thing to you. You see, if you have a four or five-year-old uh, and they're in a preschool group and the, and the, um, the teacher begins to discuss um, uh, anatomically correct names for the body. And this is a, this is a huge thing, you know, in, in sex education, that these little kids need to know 
uh, penis and vulva and clitoris and testicles. Like they all need to know they shouldn't be using childish names for those parts of their bodies. Oh, no, 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 no. That's a bad thing. They need to know the, the terms, the actual terms. But you see, when that begins, what happens? The message that the child is given, A, is that we can talk about these very private things at school. We should not feel a sense of embarrassment. If we feel a drop of embarrassment, we need to deny that. The teacher's talking about these things. She or he feels very comfortable talking about a penis and a vulva and a clitoris. I should also be comfortable with all my classmates around me, boys, girls, with this teacher that I may have just met two weeks ago. I'm supposed to feel comfortable. So that's called desensitization. And that is the beginning of grooming. Because in order to groom somebody, that person has to feel comfortable with you and has to trust you. So when our sex educators are telling us, as they have been for so long, that these little kids need to learn their anatomically correct words for their bodies, and I'm, that's only the beginning. I mean, they're telling them about, uh, you know, anal sex by the time they're 10 years old, but let's put that aside. So it's a form of grooming. Um, it's a form of, at such a young age, the child is supposed to deny their inborn sense of shame or, let's say, embarrassment. That's a normal sense of embarrassment. That should be there. That's what I'm arguing. We want our kids to have that. And the other message that the kids get from the teacher, from that whole thing of being of teach of learning those words and talking about genitals, is they get the message that it's not at home that I'm going to learn about these things. It's not my parents that are the experts that I need to go to for my questions. It's my school. It's my teacher. It's people okay. outside. And and it's it's a good point, and I take your point. But let, let's just go back to my initial question about the, the you know, we've brought up John Money. I, I've read and I've heard about other people who have propagated these theories. And again, there was the issue of... of oh, of I'll tie it in. Wait, wait, okay. I'm going to tie it in. Okay, go when, for it. When a child has, has internalized that message of, I can trust this person, this adult, um... I, it's not at home that we discuss these issues. I have to, um, I, I have to deny my internal discomfort. That is 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 making that child more available for inappropriate sexual behavior. That's how I'm tying this into the pedophilia. Does that work for you? Yes, but I, I'm, I'm, it does, and I get what you're saying, and it's a very good point, but. I was looking at it more most in the case of if we look back at it historically, a lot of people who have propagated and created these theories, there is a link, is there not? Or am I or am, or am I misrepresenting or yes. simply incorrect? Yeah, there there is a link, and there's the the, the link is to uh, uh, destroy any uh, any remnant of any Judeo Christian morality in our society, and that's a part of it. Um, you know, the sexual morality part of it. And and again, people like John Money, uh, uh, Alfred Kinsey, that we, who we didn't discuss, they promoted also a pedophile. They want to promote the idea that we are all sexual from cradle to grave. So if children are sexual, well, then why are we preventing them from engaging in sexual behavior with adults? I mean, adults are who love them. What's wrong with that? So it's all part of destroying the morality that so yes, I agree with you. There is a link. There is a real link. Uh, Miriam, we're running out of time. Uh, I know that one of the things you're keen to get across in your latest book is 
And we've had people who detransitioned and people who nearly transitioned and parents who socially transitioned their children on the show. But one of the things you really wanted to talk about is, and briefly, is the impact that gender ideology and its consequences has on the entire family unit, not just the individual young person who goes through this. So Correct. tell us in a, in a couple of minutes what's going on there. Okay. Okay. I mean, I'll, I'll just emphasize that th my book, Lost in Transnation, is a book for families, for parents. It is not for professionals. It's for moms and dads to be able to inoculate their families against these dangerous ideas before they have a problem, before one of their children comes home and says, Mom, Dad, I'm not your son, I'm your daughter. So it's very practical advice. I have conversation. I have model conversations that you can have with your child, a model conversation you can have with a therapist or the principal of your school. Now, the impact, what you just asked me, the impact on families. You know, we're all focused on the young people. Of, of course we are. Of course we're focused on them. They are the primary, that's ground zero. But we have to also acknowledge, and what I've seen over these years talking to hundreds of parents is this is this for for many parents almost I, I would say maybe all parents that go through this it is the most difficult and devastating experience they've had in their lives i'm talking about parents who may have gone through cancer financial ruin divorce 911 what have you covid and yet seeing their child uh, be, be recruited by, these, by this ideology, by this belief system, and to watch what it does to their child as their child changes before their very eyes, even, even prior to any medicalization, they see their child changing before their eyes because these children change. And they come under the influence of strangers and they, those strangers place a wedge between the child and their loving and devoted parents. These are not parents who need to be reported to Child Protective Services. And trust me, as a child psychiatrist, I myself have reported families to Child Protective Services in the past. So I know all about that. And I know all about families that cannot raise a child. Uh, uh, and, and the child has to be removed for safety purposes. I know about that. These are loving and devoted families, and the child needs their parents, and their parents have the right, the constitutional right, to, uh, to, to direct their child's uh, upbringing, their education, and their medical care. Now, these ideologues, these people at school, uh, 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 pediatricians, child protective services, uh, all, you know, like you said, it's everywhere. A wedge is placed in that relationship. And sometimes it's the wedge becomes too big and the child is actually estranged from the family. But even if the child is not estranged, the impact on the parents, I just spoke to a woman who is going through this uh, with their, their, her daughter is identifying as a boy. This woman, a few decades ago, in her native country, went through a genocide. She lived in a country that a few decades ago had a genocide. She lost her family and a limb. One of her limbs, this woman told me, that going through what she's going through with her daughter, identifying as a boy and wanting to go on testosterone, has shattered her life more than the genocide did. So this is affecting, this has a ripple effect, not just parents, siblings, grandparents, cousins, uh, and we didn't even speak about the, uh, you know, the other students in the classroom. What's the effect on other students in the classroom when suddenly they come back from their summer vacation and who they 
a, a, someone that they always saw as a boy is now they're supposed to, in their minds, think of as a girl. So we don't have time for that. But let me just remind your audience that I am providing, this is the first book in existence written by a medical doctor that is uh, providing parents with the information that they must have to understand this and to uh, and to prevent, to do what they can, to give them the tools to prevent this terrible, devastating damage from affecting their families. Uh, Miriam, uh, we are going to continue the conversation with questions from our supporters and a few more from us on our locals. Uh, but for this section of the interview, we always end with the same question, which is, What's the one thing that you think we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? And it doesn't have to be related to this, although I imagine it might be. We're not talking about how evil really does exist. We have to face it. If we don't face it, you know, we're going to have, we are having uh, this devastation that can have, we have to, we have to acknowledge that there are evil ideas and that there are evil individuals uh and and if we don't recognize it how are we going to fight it well thank you for that and uh, we invite you all to join us over on locals where we continue the conversation is the psychiatric sanity pendulum swinging back or will it get worse before it gets better Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.